Okay, what happened to us? About 10 seconds after we touch water, we, we grow these... And it vanishes when we're dry. And that's the same with you two, right? The tails are like... Exactly like. We look like mermaids. I've told you before, you're not funny. Mermaids don't exist. That's just too weird. Welcome to the Graveyard Slot, where we talk about movies past their prime time. Here, we revisit old favorites with a fresh perspective to see if they deserve more credit or if they should stay buried. I'm Sohini. And I'm Sarah, and today we're talking about H2O Just Add Water. Woo! <laughs> this is a TV show set in Australia, where three girls gain mermaid powers and navigate teenage life while keeping this magical secret. It started in 2006 and ran for three seasons and was created by Jonathan M. Shiv, an Australian TV producer. Yeah, so as you might have noticed, this episode is a little bit different. <laughs> for this episode, we thought we would try something new on the podcast since we've never discussed a TV show before. We've already looked at movies aimed at younger audiences in the past, and quite often, opinions on this kind of media boil down to it's good, but for children's TV. I'm of the opinion that H2O does a lot to challenge this notion that children's TV can only achieve a certain level of quality. And since Sarah had never seen it before, this felt like the perfect opportunity to get two different perspectives on the show. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this with you because, yeah, like you said, I've never seen it before. I'm excited too. <laughs> <laughs> well, one review that I found was from Common Sense Media and it reads, The premise is so far-fetched that it's sure to have teens rolling their eyes, but this fantasy drama is a fun escape for tweens. So it's kind of similar to the presumed bias that you said the public would have. It's funny to me that the sticking point is that the premise is too far-fetched as if like fantasy shows don't exist at all. <laughs> like what? <laughs> In terms of the supernatural magical aspect, there are shows literally aimed at teenagers that people don't criticize them for being out there like, yeah. like the Twilight. No one is like teens will roll their eyes because vampires don't exist. <laughs> And I mean, also, I can't speak for all teens, obviously, but I personally discovered the show when I was a teenager and I really loved it. Based on the general perception I get of this show, I'm not alone in that either. Yeah. There are loads of people who, like me, love the show in their teens and have continued to love it. Even now, they revisit it time and time again. I mean, I just watched it and I really liked it. And I'm not even a tween. <laughs> I liked it because I knew of the existence of different genres, which apparently this <laughs> critic did not. There's a lot of really great stories out there. <laughs> Alright, so we'll be discussing this show somewhat chronologically, in the sense that we're doing it season by season, and we start with season one when they first get their powers. Mm -hmm. So we're introduced to our main characters, Cleo, Emma, and Ricky. Yeah, we're introduced to them one by one in this episode, living their ordinary lives. And through happenstance, they end up at Mako Island, where during the full moon, they <laughs> end up gaining these powers. And season one basically revolves around these girls' lives as they try to grapple with what's happened to them and try to reconcile the consequences of these powers and the effect that they have on their everyday lives. Yeah, I would say that the season and the show starts off with 
Cleo as the main protagonist. I agree. And she, I think, has the biggest learning curve with the mermaid powers because she has this dislike of water. Supposed dislike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I will say it's really interesting to see Cleo in the early episodes as this like clueless baby <laughs> because of how much she comes into herself over time. Yeah. She's basically the one who's most self-possessed at the end. Yeah, Cleo's arc throughout the whole show is one of my favorite parts. I think they really did her character justice in a way that I don't think they could achieve with any of the other characters. I think she is the one they fleshed out the most consistently throughout the show. Yeah, consistency is the key word there. Because I was going to say that I don't know if I agree with that because they do a great job with some of the other characters. Yeah. But yeah, Cleo is the one that's most consistent. You're right. <laughs> it starts off kind of shaky though because there's this whole dislike of water right mm. in the beginning it is so prevalent and severe that i kept waiting for some past trauma <laughs> to yeah. come to light and it never does it's just supposed to show how she's kind of like let loose and accepted who she is when she gives into being a mermaid and enjoys swimming but i think they leaned way too hard into her dislike that it shot right past discomfort and straight into <laughs> mysterious trauma yeah i absolutely agree so for context in the first episode they established that cleo can't swim but within the first couple of episodes of season one, she's already comfortable in the water as a mermaid. So I really wish they had either committed to giving her a phobia of water or not done it at all. Because it is really interesting for someone who says that they hate water to become a mermaid. The whole show does document an enormous growth in her confidence, as we've already mentioned. And so this would have fit right in. Yeah. It should have spanned, if not the entire season, at least the first half season. Like, where she does learn to swim as a mermaid and everything, but she still doesn't like it. And then by, say, the mid-season, she finally, you know, enjoys it, and that's great growth. And also, she would have been a great foil to Emma. Exactly. So, Emma is actually a swimmer, and she swims competitively and i really like this thread but i don't think they used it to its fullest potential i don't know there are things in the show and in the season where they keep choosing almost actively to not delve deep they're like two inches away from the point and then they just stop it's like just shy of brilliance <laughs> So Emma can't swim competitively anymore because they get turned into mermaids once they touch water. Emma losing her ability to swim competitively is heartbreaking and I love that whole thing. But I wish they had explored this further. I know that she loves being a mermaid, so maybe it's just that she's recontextualized her love of swimming. But if that's the case, then I wish we had seen that. We sort of see her struggle with it, but I don't think we sufficiently saw that internal conflict and resolution for this character. Emma's circumstance also lends itself so well to the way this change affects her relationship with her parents. So much of her identity in their eyes is tied up with her as an athlete. So this almost fundamental change in how she leads her life affects the way her parents perceive her. Again, they somewhat touch on this, but not really, only portraying it in like a surface level storyline. When change and the turmoil it puts familial relationships through is so core to a story about growing up. 
especially in the coming of age of a teenage girl. Like this change that's so fundamental to the way someone sees you is inherent in growing up, which is like the whole point of the show, right? They keep reminding us that this is a change in her. Like it keeps happening in the background, which is a great way of doing things. But you can also actually explore it, but they never do. Yeah, I'm in complete agreement. Emma's identity as a swimmer is a really big part of the basis for everything her family knows about her, that she's competitive and ambitious. And not only that, but it seems like something they all share between them. One moment that particularly struck me is when Emma organizes her dad's birthday party, but because of mermaid hijinks, everything goes wrong and Emma's worried that her dad is disappointed in her. And that's when she tells him that when she first went swimming, she felt reassured that her dad was there with her and now there's this whole part of her life that is related to swimming that she can't tell him about this whole mass of conflicted feelings about keeping secrets from her family is a recurring thread for her but yeah it isn't explored to any depth because it's brushed aside each time you would think that it would be a bigger issue because this was her dream the fact that she's giving it up so suddenly, it really does make sense that her parents would be more concerned. Even just Emma on her own, she just keeps like brushing it off. Like, oh, I don't want to talk about it. The fact that I had to give up this dream of mine. And I keep waiting for it to hit her and she, she'll have to deal with the grief. But she never does. Like, it's never, it's never in the show. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> And the thing you mentioned about her and her family being really close and open with each other, that growing distance with your family or with your parents is a pretty universal experience, not to the same extent for everybody, but like to an extent. So I think that's just like, I don't understand why they never just do it. A part of me thinks it's a space issue. The episodes are pretty short and they dedicate a lot more time to mermaid hijinks. <laughs> I still think compared to the later seasons, season one does the best mm -hmm. job of fleshing out these background issues, I guess is one way to put it, which really makes them feel like real people. Yeah. The whole point of this genre is that these supernatural elements are supposed to stand in for it's a tool. real life problems. Yeah, it's a writing tool. So that's the whole point, which is why I'm like, you put all this effort into crafting this tool to do its job. And it is. But then you decided to just not use it at the very last moment. <laughs> like, it's confusing, but I do at least like that the tool is well-crafted, I guess. Yeah, it has a purpose. Yeah. Once this mermaid thing happens... She deviates. Yeah, she deviates, and it's almost like she's jeopardizing her place in that family. Like with the trip. Yeah, she's the one who is not going along with family traditions anymore. And it does take somewhat of a toll on her. Yeah, that's the thing. They keep bringing it up, but they never follow through. And there's a the whole thing about like, they never keep secrets from one another. And she keeps talking about how like her brother will be so mad. And this is a great counterpoint to Ricky and her yes. family. Because one of these times when Emma is worried about how big a betrayal it would be for her brother Elliot, Ricky makes a comment about perfect families not being able to handle anything. And, you know, it hints at somewhat of a troubled family life for Ricky and highlights the differences in the two's upbringing and reveals so much about their personalities and backgrounds. Yes, I actually really like Ricky and Emma's relationship. It's not as straightforward as disliking each other or immediately connecting and becoming friends either. I especially like how the pilot ends with Ricky making some joke after Emma says they need to keep their powers a secret. Ricky says, 
doesn't mean we're married, does it? And Emma says, <laughs> now that's actually funny. It's such a great button, but also a great starting point to their developing dynamic. They're somewhat at odds, but the way their senses of humor clash is really entertaining. Yeah, I really love the complexity in the way that they sometimes clash, but then sometimes also balance each other out. When they're facing moments of crisis, they can rely on each other to show each other a different perspective. Yeah, I think the first season is so strong because these characters are so well-written and written specifically to interact with one another, to bounce off of each other. And that's the whole reason the season works or like the whole reason the show works. As much as I love the premise, it's not because of the premise. And like that goes with any story ever. But in this one, I love that the whole point is them becoming friends instead of already being friends. I also like the contrast of Emma and Cleo being best friends and having been that way for a long time, whereas Ricky is the odd man out and is a new kid. I always thought the friendship between these girls would be an interesting theme to explore, especially in the third season when new girl Bella is introduced. I thought that was a really great opportunity to explore this theme more than in the first season because it's a new kid who isn't used to hanging around in groups and Ricky and Cleo are also you know really close at this point and I would assume not really open to letting anyone in mermaid or not but it's like mermaid equals friends. It would have been great to see like what becoming a mermaid means and has facilitated for different people's lives like for the girls it has created a connection and friendship whereas for example for Bella it could have been that for her it was to help entertain herself when she's on her own it's like it's been an isolated pleasure for her and how that's inherently different yeah she's had a much more different experience having been a mermaid since she was a kid she probably knows things that ricky and cleo don't know maybe their experiences are contradictory and it would be really easy to get into a conflict because each of them thinks they know best and how do you reconcile those differences that's a complexity to their relationship that isn't really explored at all they just become friends by default but yeah so each of the girls actually discover that they have magical powers emma can freeze water cleo can move water and ricky can heat up water Here's a complaint that I have that is so annoying to me. Ricky steams off their tails to turn them back into humans all the time. But I'm like, why can't Cleo just move all the water off of herself and or others to dry them off? Like, that's how it works. I always did think Cleo's power was the most interesting and potentially the most fun. (laughs) I liked her power best too. Apart from the whole like being able to turn yourself back really quickly things so if that is something she could have done i think that would have been the best power maybe that's why they they didn't (laughs) want to make her power too awesome so they held her back (laughs) yeah but actually i like how their powers speak to their characters because ricky is a bit hot-headed emma's (laughs) cool-headed she's all about like control and stuff and cleo is the one who's like best with people and can adapt to situations really well yeah with the powers and the way they're used in the first season it's gonna sound like a weird comparison but it kind of reminded me of the video game jumanji (laughs) in the jumanji sequels 
the game empowers the characters to discover parts of themselves. Right. And it seems like the girls' mermaid powers also fulfill a similar purpose. I agree. The powers are like an extension of their strengths, basically. Especially in the first season, I feel like the powers were tied really well to character development. Yeah, and this is a coming-of-age story, so that makes perfect sense that the powers, one of the main things in the show, is what propels that. But we don't only have our three girls, we also have Louis. He is Cleo's best friend and... Arguably the best character. (laughs) Yeah, I love him so much. He is one of my favorite characters. I love his dynamic with Ricky, actually, because they're so funny. (laughs) Yeah. I used to love Ricky and Louis's dynamic a lot as well. They play off of each other really well. But But you don't anymore. (laughs) Watching these episodes back to back is a different experience, obviously, to watching it on TV now and then. Just like seeing it all play out all at once kind of highlighted just how unfairly treated Louis is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I understand that the girls don't necessarily always agree with his approach on things. He often carries out these experiments (laughs) trying to find out what exactly happened, why it happened. And I don't always agree with the way he treats them because sometimes he gets carried away and treats them like they're experiment subjects, which isn't fair. But throughout the show, he does so much for them. He tries to protect them and I think he's done more than enough to earn their trust. But the girls, especially Ricky and Emma, are so dismissive of his research. Every full moon, they're like, we don't need your help, Louis. Then they mess up. Then they're like, help, Louis. With the full moon thing, I'm like, why wouldn't you want a neutral party there to like rein you in and everything? But then again, I don't think this has anything to do with Louis. I don't know if they don't understand the full moon thing or they're just so inept, but like they're so bad at it. It's definitely strange because he's the only one who isn't affected by the full moon's influence. So it would make sense to have him around. Yeah, the way they go about the full moon is always so weird. But I also really like how Louis is specifically Cleo's friend. And this whole mermaid thing has like made Ricky become a new friend to Emma and Cleo, but also brought Louis into their circle. Not to explain away the way they treat Louis, but like I really like these moments of friction where Emma and Ricky, like it's clear that they're not friends with Louis on their own. Not to like, not to shit on season three again, but it's like, (laughs) there is no like default, we're friends now. It's just like they're stuck in the situation together. And while they're stuck in the situation together, they become friends over time. And I really liked seeing that with Lewis's character too. Yeah, I think this is definitely one of the strengths of the first, maybe second season. Each character has such a rich background life going on. And because of this, there's evidence of them having lived full and varied lives before the mermaid thing even began, which once again makes them seem like real people. And with everything that's going on in the supernatural and magical aspect, having these really realistic characters grounds that supernatural aspect so well. It tethers it to real human emotions and real feeling characters and I think that makes it so much easier to get on board with everything that's happening and actually be invested in it. With Lewis becoming a part of the group, he with his scientific interests gets involved and eventually his skills get called into question and the way he treats them gets called into question. What happens in each episode affects each of them differently. 
and that affects how they interact with each other. Yeah, that is actually one of my favorite things about season one because everyone has their own perspective, right? And like, they're all our protagonists to an extent, but they are often at odds with each other. So they're like, at times, an antagonist, but they're not like cartoon villains or whatever, you know? Like you said, these relationships can be used to tell certain stories, to ask certain questions, to explore certain themes. And they're all the cast of characters that we care about. And so even if one of them does something weird or like something selfish or whatever, we can understand where they're coming from because we've gotten to know them and they show us where they're coming from. So that makes for really strong writing. I do want to talk about a very minor character, Byron. I kind of love that he's just this clueless dude in the background who pops up randomly. (laughs) Absolutely zero relevance (laughs) to the plot, zero character development, entirely a prop for them to shuffle around. (laughs) Genuinely love that. He shows up, makes one comment that sets off the plot of the episode, and then we don't see him again. (laughs) Yeah. So one thing that also serves the realism of this whole story is the fact that we do get some kind of scientific basis to the girl's transformation because while Lewis is doing all his experiments, we get these scenes where he's looking at cell samples and we see how the cell structure changes when water is added. And through this whole aspect of the first season, the show actually introduces a really interesting theme of intellect versus instinct. And one character who clashes with Lewis because of his more scientific analytical perspective is Miss Chatham. That's really interesting that you say she somewhat represents instinct in opposition to Lewis's intellect. Well, she vouches for it in any case. I don't think they do a very good job of illustrating this, which is my biggest problem with her, but I don't like her. But (laughs) she basically shows up out of nowhere and starts talking to Cleo about mysterious things. But basically, their very first interaction, she implies that she knows about Cleo's mermaid powers. I hate her as a character. (laughs) Like, not as a person. I just hate her function and her writing. It makes no sense that she would just pop up out of nowhere and provide cryptic messages that they need to parse out for useful information. Why would she even do this from her point of view? What's the benefit of cloaking the information in roundabout messages? Even if you argue that her dialogue is pretty straightforward, like once you know, you know, then what is her motivation in not just outright telling Cleo who and what she is? Her knowing this information already lets us and Cleo know that she's privy to the existence of mermaids and most likely one herself or was one herself. So it's not like she's hiding that secret even. This bugs me so fucking much because it doesn't make internal sense that she would serve the role of mysterious old woman without any reason. Like, as if she knows she's in a scripted show and was cast (laughs) as one. Honestly, nothing she tells them is ever that helpful. At least aside from when she finally does tell them everything about her past and her friends and the solution for the end of season one. They always just hem and haw and stay in the dark and then some shit happens and they're like, oh hey, this is just like what Miss Chatham said and that's it it's not like the warning helps them avoid the bullshit it doesn't even really help them contextualize the bullshit because like what now they know it's because of their mermaid thing yeah no shit Sherlock (laughs) like (laughs) I hate her 
I agree with everything you said. I feel like she's such an underused tool. She kind of reminds me of the dragon in Merlin in that mm. he was also always giving really cryptic answers. And they're both like Googles of their universes if Google answered in cryptic riddles. And it is frustrating. I agree. Yeah. But to bring it back to Lewis and Miss Chatham's relationship, there's this part where Lewis questions how Miss Chatham knows the stuff she knows and comes to the conclusions that she does. But no one takes him seriously. <laughs> Same as always. Yeah. And he's the only one around being reasonable. Like, just ask her to explain. I'm not saying even that the explanation of, like, woohoo, magic, whatever, is, like, bullshit. That's, like, neither here nor there. That's not my problem with the Miss Chatham character. When she says stuff like, I just know from personal experience that ask her to explain that experience. Like, they never ask her to elaborate. I'm also like, why are you trusting the stranger? Like, yeah, she knows stuff, but like, we don't know what her motives are. At the beginning, I thought she was going to be like a witch or something. Like, she's like, this shows Ursula. Like, she's <laughs> tricking them. Because like, I'm looking for a way that this makes sense, right? Like, what is her motivation? What is her background? What is what is making her spew this cryptic shit? Which like, would make sense if she was Ursula. If she was an evil, like, antagonist. Trying to trick them down certain paths. What they wanted her to do as a character is to give a sense of history to mermaids and to Mako that like this has happened before and also a tangible function is for her to provide information at the end of the season when they need to solve the big plot. This is the thing they want her to provide history and this mysterious old woman trope and like even within the show she doesn't make internal sense because she is acting the role of old woman instead of like she is a human character the way everybody else is the way they've done such a good job with everybody else except for Miss Chatham. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I hate her. <laughs> so, despite my theories, Miss Chatham doesn't turn out to be a villain, but there is a different character called Dr. Denman, who is a marine biologist who comes into town and sets up shop. And Lewis wants to get close to her to use her equipment for his research. <laughs> but there's this whole thing about, you know, Lewis crushing on Dr. Denman and Cleo being jealous because he is the love interest for her. But I will say, the whole thread about Dr. Denman and Lewis is so weird because, like, even in the sense that Dr. Denman is using him or whatever, the reason this is bad is because of that deception and not the fact that she's an adult and Lewis is a child. And it's really funny the way this comes off. It makes sense that Lewis would have a crush on her, like a celebrity crush, right? And because she she is a villain of the season, her whole thing is that she, especially moving forward, once she knows that Lewis has something that she wants, she plays into Lewis's crush. Yeah. I mean, maybe because we are so entrenched in the kids' perspective. Right. True. I guess they don't really think about it. They don't it. see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Lewis's actual plan is to use their genetic material in this research. And because it's really interesting. His whole thing is like, you should trust me to handle this responsibly. But like, that shouldn't be like his decision, right? So Lewis's insistence in doing whatever he wants with their genetic material is a pretty interesting thread. He learns this lesson by the end because things go sideways. But I think that's sort of beside the point, which is why like, to me, it feels like two different conflicts, like the one at the end and the one that we started with. The initial conflict is about autonomy and trust. And even if Lewis was right, even if Lewis was right and everything goes smoothly and he like comes out of that lab victorious, it's entirely the girl's decision whether or not to do XYZ test or provide whatever sample. Later down the line, it gets to a point where Ricky is really irritated that he keeps taking samples from her. And I feel like they should have resolved this more fully given how serious it is. 
but it's just like a quirky trait of Lewis's. Except it so happens to be that in this case, he's trampling on their boundaries and bodily autonomy. So like that's the main issue of this whole like plan in the first place. The problem with what happens with Dr. Denman isn't even that he's doing these experiments that can get them into trouble and clue someone in on their secret. It's that it's an important boundary the girls have set, and Lewis takes slightly and declares irrelevant. That's the core of the issue, aside from whatever outside forces or plot occur by consequence. If this had turned out well, it would still be wrong of him to do this against the girl's clear lack of consent. On this subject, he even goes so far as to play victim after the girls confront him for taking Denman to Mako. It's again clear that they're reiterating where the line is drawn, and he wails on them for not trusting him. It's the sense of ownership over their secret, over their bodies, that leads him to think that he has any authority over deciding what is and isn't acceptable. When in truth, it's not his call. I think the fact that this happens in season 1 episode 8 makes this an especially glaring offense, because all the things that he will do to help them in coming episodes, that might make for an interesting debate as to how much Lewis has a say in what they do or don't do, hasn't quite happened yet. And I mean, we do see this lack of respect in the text acknowledged by the narrative when Louis calls them kids and compares them to Dr. Denman, a woman, when they're having this fight. This is actually a great aspect to this whole thing because, again, the issue doesn't have much to do with Dr. Denman. It's the fact that Louis sees them as people who shouldn't have the authority in what happens to their own lives and bodies. And I think that introduces a great layer that can be equated to what might happen if the girls were to tell their parents and why they can't. That autonomy will most likely be taken away from them. And given that this change in their lives and their bodies is far from optional or voluntary, the possibility that anyone, even their loved ones, acting in good faith, making decisions on their behalf without any ability to regain that authority is incredibly dangerous and terrifying. Like, I think this is such a great way to explore that avenue. Because it's a glaring question, right, the entire season. Why won't they just tell their parents? Their parents would help. Their parents would never do anything that would harm them. But their parents is in such a position of power where and they can take that authority away from them. And the fact that this authority is over something so personal as your bodily autonomy is terrifying. And I really like that this happens because then we understand this layer to the secret and to who they can and can't tell and what they can and can't do and who has to say in what. Your point about using Lewis as a stand-in is really, really interesting. Up until Mako, I agree with what you said. I had the same thought as well that Lewis really should respect what the girls are saying because he's treating them like science experiments and it's not right. I'm totally with you on that. I think where we diverge after Mako is that while I agree that Lewis should respect the girls' bodily autonomy, they don't own Mako. They can't stop people from going to Mako. And if Lewis and Denman go to Mako to conduct scientific research, that doesn't automatically mean that it's going to lead them to the girls or it's going to lead them to their secret. So that's where I think they went over the line. That's an interesting point you bring up because Mako is such a big thing in the show and it'll matter moving forward. But I had always seen Mako as a metaphorical sense of self 
for the girls. So I guess, like the girls, I was equating Mako to their secret. Even if they're wrong, I think the episode and the show does a pretty good job of, I would say, equating Mako with their sense of self. But even if it wasn't that, the show does a pretty good job of showing how the girls have maybe improperly equated Mako to their secret. But you're right, I guess in the literal sense, <laughs> they don't own Mako. I can see your point. Mako is very obviously entangled in the girls' lives and their secret. And over time, it becomes a safe place for them. And so whenever an outsider happens to get near it, they feel like their safe place is being raided and that specific person is getting close to them. Like getting close to Mako is getting close to them. I don't know if the show is making this point, but I do think they need to separate their sense of self from any external object because they can't claim ownership over something that technically no one can own. It's dangerous for them. And the fact is that each time someone gets close to Mako, I think Things might have worked out just fine if the girls didn't panic and lead that person <laughs> straight to, to the, the moon, moon pool. pool and straight to their secret. <laughs> they do it again with Charlotte in the second season when initially Charlotte only goes to Mako with Lewis to sketch the place. And they immediately freak out that someone is going to Mako. And it's like, maybe in your eyes, those things are equal, but nobody is connecting you to Mako <laughs> until you make a big deal about it. That's so funny. I like genuinely say that I never thought about it. Like I, I had always been just like in the same headspace as the girls. And now that I think about it, I'm like, you're right. <laughs> it's kind of really funny. I think also like there's a difference between just some random person wandering to Mako and someone like their friend who knows their secret knowingly taking a stranger like an outsider to Mako. Sure. I get that they see it as a betrayal of their trust, but surely at that point you trust Lewis enough to know that he's not going to knowingly lead Charlotte to the moon pool. It's even better than someone wandering around Mako because they are with someone who is very conscious about where they can and cannot go. It's unfortunate that whoever it is going with the person to Mako, they seem to not be able to control them and they end up at the middle <laughs> anyway, but that's a separate issue. So I think both of the parties have their own faults in this episode. And that's what makes it really interesting because it isn't like our protagonists are all perfect. The heroes always saving the day or they're always in the right. They also make mistakes. They also make questionable decisions. And all of that, again, contributes to making complex and real characters. And it's not just mistakes. It's like they're both pursuing their goals. They just happen to be like at odds at times. They make sense in the context of each character. But yeah, this is an excellent episode. I really liked it. Overall, it's great because it sets up our main conflict for the season because Dr. Denman returns later on and joins forces with more characters to form an imminent threat to the girl's secret. I think it's great that they introduce Denman so early on because otherwise I think it would be all too convenient that a marine biologist shows up yeah. right when we need her. It's great that we have time to get introduced to her, explore these conflicts between her and Lewis and the girls. Yeah, I think so too. And I really like that it's like multiple different threats and then at the end they like merge into one. But on that subject, perhaps we should talk about Zane. Yes, it's about time we have to, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> he is a classmate 
of the girls, I assume, though we never see him at school. He's too rich for school. Yeah, he, he's a bully. He pops up time and time again to antagonize Cleo or one of the other girls. And he's a rich dude. Or his dad is. <laughs> yeah, that's how he spends his day. Antagonizing and living on his dad's money. Until. <laughs> <laughs> Until he meets Miss Chatham's boat. <laughs> really hate her. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you bring that up every opportunity. You get. <laughs> There's this whole thing about her rambling about how they're after my treasures. And it's another nonsensical writing choice that's in there for the sake of mystery, I guess. Because the treasure is her personal belongings, it turns out. So why would she even think someone is trying to take her treasure? No one cares. It's not like it's a gold necklace or whatever. Even when Zane finds it, he's like, what is this bullshit junk? It's nothing. <laughs> The one thing that I like from Miss Chatham, and I have already mentioned this, her only tangible function, that she mentions the possibility of giving up their powers. And she does it early enough in the show, and early enough into the girls gaining these powers and starting to adjust, that I don't think it's out of the question for them to choose to give it up, or to be tempted to seek this out. I think that would have been a great arc if, like, one of them, secretly, behind the other's backs, tried to, like, research this or something. I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting storyline they could have gone with. Yeah, I mean, even if it's in not in that much detail where they research it, I think it's fair enough if one of the girls does consider giving up the powers once they realize that's an option. Because they're all sacrificing something to some extent to have these yeah. powers, and it is totally realistic that they might look for a way out of it. Yeah, and it would be really interesting if like at the end where they do choose to give up these powers, it has morphed and changed and they've changed as people to the point where giving up the powers is instead the sacrifice. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Chatham. Yeah, there's this whole thing with her boat and it being taken away and whatever. And she ends up like driving away in her boat in the middle of the night and it breaks down in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. The poor treatment isn't justified, but it's not entirely unprompted because her old boat is causing issues to other people's property. Unfortunately for her, the other people's property happens to be Zane's and he really <laughs> will not let it go. You could easily buy another one, but he takes it as a personal grudge and he chases after Miss Chatham's boat and ends up confronting her. His plans are always, like they're not to be taken lightly. It just so happens that he's so bad at them that they always fail to get to that point. He keeps doing these things that are honestly out of line, but they get derailed. And so the outcome is as if he was just being a bully or being reckless or short-sighted, but that's not true. If things had gone right, he would have committed some really heinous things. And this is like one of the problems I have with this character where like they treat him with this same severity that someone who had planned for the outcome that he gets should get instead of what he actually did. Basically, he never gets any consequences. Yeah. So yeah, Miss Chatham collapses. Did you think for a second that she was faking? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it happens too many times in one episode. Yeah. But Emma and Lewis come to the rescue basically to take her to the hospital but Zane stays behind in the boat because he had heard her rambling about this treasure and the boat is in such a bad condition that it starts to sink with Zane stuck inside so Emma circles back around as a mermaid to save Zane and Zane sees a glimpse of her tail and afterwards gets obsessed with finding the mermaid that saved him. So Emma saves Zane and basically Zane comes to back at the beach and that scene 
between them is honestly really interesting. And I think they really have a fascinating dynamic. And this scene alone, because this doesn't go farther than this. I had thought initially that it would lead to Zane feeling some kind of debt towards Emma and from there grow and become a better person. But that's not his arc at all. If anything, he gets worse. <laughs> yeah. I would have loved, honestly, for them to play around with this dynamic where for Zane, Emma becomes the reminder and manifestation for his mortality and lack of power when he's stripped of his fortune and money and place in society that his father's standing awards him. And where for Emma, he's a manifestation of the complexities of her powers and responsibility because he's this awful person she hates, and yet she'll save him anyway, even at the expense of her secret. It's a great way to explore that conflicting emotion that surely comes comes as a consequence. I guess the fact that following this, instead of Zane going through an existential crisis or looking inward, he instead wants to take advantage of the creature that saved him and gain a notoriety <laughs> from it. This is a lot about his character. Mm. He's so desperate to prove himself, and that's exactly why he acts the way that he does. To add on to that, there's a potentially interesting layer between Emma and Zane because it's established that they used to be friends. Yes! There's this whole thread and they never use it and I love this history between them. I'm gonna make another weird comparison and that's to Lizzie McGuire because mm. in the show, Lizzie and her occasional bully Kate used to be best friends, which I think oh, yeah. adds a great layer to their already complicated dynamic. I thought there could be something similar between Zane and Emma because of their past friendship and not just that but we find out that Emma's mom and Zane's dad have a history too where Emma's mom saved Zane's dad from drowning yeah. so it's like they set up these little things that would take these relationships further but there's no payoff nor does it add anything to the story ultimately so yeah we don't get more of emma and zane but we do get zane and ricky there's an episode where ricky is affected by the full moon and she goes to mako and at this point zane has gone down this rabbit hole of a hunt to find the mermaid that he saw and he's found out mako's relevance so he goes there and encounters ricky what do you think of this scene? Because like Ricky vaguely expresses her angst and Zane relates and then they kiss and Ricky's power kill him? Question mark? <laughs> it super dehydrates him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's jerky after. <laughs> he's already a jerk, so it fits. <laughs> I think it's just very surface level. It's very like angst for the sake of angst or something. Like it's angst in the same way that everyone has that same angst. Obviously you would relate to that. It's, not, it's like nothing with substance. The scene with Zane and Ricky feels very insignificant in, in the bigger picture of the whole episode and in Ricky's arc. Like this particular scene doesn't do anything <laughs> in terms of developing their characters. After this encounter, Zane seems to be interested in Ricky, approaching her in the morning after. They run into each other again at a seminar, and we and Ricky learn more about Zane's relationship with his dad. This is kind of the start of Zane and Ricky as a couple, but I kind of don't get why Ricky likes him. Because we understand why he acts the way he does, but it doesn't excuse his behavior. It's not like he starts acting better and then Ricky likes him. Like, he's still a bully. Like, he's not a jerk to Ricky, yeah, but don't you care that he's a jerk to everybody else? I agree. Maybe it's a mutual feeling of being misunderstood that draws Ricky to Zane. I don't know. It doesn't excuse everything he's done, obviously. I kind of get where they connect. It's just like, I kept expecting him to get a redemption arc. He's becoming a joke because of his mermaid hunt. 
And I expected that to put him in such a low social standing that he rose to be more than a jerk or like, I guess, less of a jerk <laughs> to be more than just a jerk. <laughs> but then he, he's, he's still acting like a jerk. And I'm like, I even understand the like misguided thinking of Ricky being like, no, I know him better than that. Maybe now he won't act like this anymore because he's got me. But then he ends up not changing at all. He's still a jerk. And then I would expect Ricky to be like, hey, never mind. What the fuck? I thought you were cool now. Especially with it being Ricky. She's so self-assured. I agree. I don't know. Anyway. So one pretty big aspect of the show that we haven't discussed yet is the full moon and the effect that it has on the girls. Every time there's a full moon, they seem to go in some sort of a trance and lose control of their powers and cause all-around chaos. <laughs> and I thought this was an interesting tool in the same way that, in general, the girls mermaid powers serve as a tool to develop their characters. It's tied really closely to the girls' character development, at least in the first season, because throughout these various hijinks, each of the girls has to confront a part of their character because of the way they acted during the full moon. So the episode we mentioned earlier where Ricky is affected, that leads her to go off on her own because that's what she's used to doing. And because of that incident, she's forced to confront her standoffishness. Similarly, Cleo, I think the moon brings to the surface a need for attention that she's never articulated before. But when she becomes a siren and has the attention of all the boys in the town and probably the neighboring towns, <laughs> it's like a different side of her that we've never seen before. In this way, the moon serves as a really interesting tool to make the girls confront parts of themselves and grow as people but i also think the downfall is the fact that more often than not the girls never remember what happened after the full moon it seems like their powers could really help them to come to certain realizations but it's it's also counterproductive that they never remember these memories that could lead to a particular epiphany. Maybe that just illustrates the same way the show, you know, always almost gets to the heart of things but never quite does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Another example that I wanted to bring up is again in that episode with the birthday party for Emma's dad when she's moonstruck as they call it she ends up causing chaos and worrying that she disappointed her parents because he calls her his perfect daughter and through the moon spell the episode explores the high expectations that emma sets for herself and that her parents have of her and how the powers are almost empowering emma to follow her instincts and set herself free it's like an extreme version of learning to let go of her need for control, and it's a great metaphor for trying to find balance in life in general. I think actually the episode with the birthday party is the only exception, or like one of the very few, because Emma does have to deal with the consequences. Yeah, that's a different point though, I would say, because sometimes they do have to face consequences and sometimes they don't, but my point is that it's like the moon spell and the powers and everything are trying to propel them to grow as people, but they never look inwards because they always forget. <laughs> That's the main gripe I have with this whole setup. I agree. So all of the storylines converge into Dr. Denman researching Mako with the help and resources 
from Zane's dad and then Zane also trying to find mermaids. And basically, they succeed in trapping the girls in the moon pool for the purposes of their research. And Zane finally sees them there and realizes that the mermaids are Ricky and the girls. This is another <laughs> Zane hate corner. <laughs> it bugs me so much because Zane only helps them in the end because it's them. He already knew they were hunting mermaids, sentient beings, one of whom saved his life. Like the fact that the mermaid saved his life and then he just decides to catch it. <laughs> yeah, catch it. Make money off it. Yeah. I guess you can say that he comes to his senses when he recognizes people he knows to be part of the group he's hunting. Oh, but no. the narrative doesn't suggest that at all. Just that he cares that it's Ricky and friends. Yeah. Oh, I hate him. So they do get to escape, and the solution they come up with comes from Miss Chatham, the only time she's ever useful. And she tells them that they can give up their powers and how to do it. There's a special full moon, apparently, that allows you to give up your powers. Oh, I wonder if this will ever come back. <laughs> But they choose to do it and they do it in front of Dr. Denman so she knows they're not mermaids anymore and they're living their lives as normal teenage girls when, oops, <laughs> they turn back into mermaids. Miss <laughs> Chatham lied to them, just played a little trick. Yeah. So they're still mermaids. It just took away the power for 12 hours. Convenient. I never got the whole, we didn't tell you because we needed you yeah. to believe it. That was stupid. <laughs> It doesn't make sense for this. It would make sense if like it's one of those like, you know, you're doing magic and you need to like fully believe it in your like soul or whatever. Sure. <laughs> I thought you were you were gonna come up with like a real world example. <laughs> you went the Tinkerbell route. You know when you're doing magic. <laughs> Every time Lewis is like, you had to believe it, like to sell it or whatever. I always think he's going to end this, the sentence differently. And it's like, you have to believe it for it to work, like for, for the moon pool to work, like for them to really want to give up their powers. But that's not the end of the sentence. Yeah, I very clearly they were trying to trick the audience and not the girls. Yeah. Because we are supposed to believe they give up their powers forever. That's true. Yeah. That's the reason that it's kept from the girls. That's bad. That's a bad writing choice. I wish they had gone about it a different way. <laughs> they could have just not told us. Like, still have it happen and then at the end they're like, let's go for a swim. And like, we're still expecting them to just have like a swim and then they turn back into mermaids and it's still a surprise to the audience. Like, I don't think they, they needed to keep it for the girls. Yeah, or another option is that they don't know either. They think it's permanent, like all of them do. And then it turns out it's temporary. True, yeah. Compared to the finales of seasons two and three, I think I like the way things go down the most in season one. Same. I think they do a really good job of setting up these different conflicts. We even have a separate episode where Zane's dad reveals his yeah. plans to develop Mako. Throughout the season, we are slowly building up towards it. So like the final episode has that buildup that it deserves. I think it's really satisfying that all these threads combine and form one big bad force for the girls to face. What I also really like is that they don't get away with just using their powers and acting the superhero and defeating the evil. It is a much more realistic situation where because of these 
forces that they can't defeat because of the greed and curiosity of people they are forced to give up something special it's a lot more human and it's a lot more applicable to real life situations where the solution isn't supernatural forces or magic it's that unfortunately you have to give up a part of yourself or give up something you cherish because there's no other way yeah i really like this as well the conflicts don't come out of nowhere they have context like Zayn is on his own path, the dad is on his own path, Dr. Denman is on her own path, and they just happen to feed into each other and to benefit one another. Like, it's it's really well constructed. Exactly. Everything feels like it's set up with a purpose, and we can almost see it coming with a sense of dread. The season also ends with Zayn and Ricky breaking up, and I don't get why they decide to part ways now. I mean, like, I'm glad they break up, but, like, I don't get it. I'm like, Ricky, just, like, commit to your bad relationship choice. (laughs) I think the line she says is, like, does this seem like a relationship that's going anywhere? And they agree that it's not. If anything, now it's more going somewhere than it ever was because now he's in on your secret. Now you can be your whole self with him. (laughs) So it doesn't make any sense. But yeah, I guess they didn't know if they could get Zane's actor for season two, and they're like, we have to break them up before season two. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's season one, and let's move on to season two now. Yeah. We actually start the season with a bang, because the girls get new powers. I don't know why my brain just wouldn't compute gaining new powers. I'm like, you can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) But they do gain new powers and basically they can control wind, lightning, and thunder. But also their original powers go out of control. They also murder Lewis. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Pretty much. There's much more attempted murder in this show than I remember (laughs) as a kid. But yeah, Lewis is the victim in this case. In the trance of the full moon, they throw him around a little. (laughs) A little? He's like way up in the air. (laughs) Okay, a lot. Lewis must have magic powers if he survived that, to be honest. (laughs) But yeah, once they come out of their full moon trance, they realize that things have grown serious. And I really like this wake-up call because at this point in the show, I think the girls have gotten used to their powers they're comfortable using them maybe a little bit too much and this is like a reality check that they don't necessarily know the full extent of the forces that they're dealing with so i think this is a great start for the season it sets us up to go somewhere except i don't think the show does a great job in following through on that premise the first couple episodes are dedicated to the girls learning to control their new abilities but when i say the first couple it's like the first two (laughs) and then they do it at the end of episode two and then they do it exactly i thought it was gonna be the whole season exactly (laughs) i thought it would be similar to season one where multiple threats come together and form the final showdown where the girls finally learn how to control and wield their abilities to confront the big bad but (laughs) it's always so jarring to me the speed with which they pick up (laughs) their new abilities and are able to wield them with precision yeah i mean dare i say it it's unrealistic (laughs) (laughs) haven't you heard of genre (laughs) sahini 
Yeah, it's also really funny too because one of the ways they do it is they do Japanese paint. Yeah, it's supposed to be a Japanese painting technique that they're emulating. Right. They do it for like two seconds. <laughs> yeah, I assume like you're supposed to do it as a routine, like training, you know, and then after a while, it becomes habit and it's like a muscle memory, right? And so when you try to control your powers, it's with the same precision. But they do it for two seconds and then they try. They rushed it too much. It's the same thing as Cleo's dislike of water. Exactly. But speaking of the powers, I also wanted to talk about the girl's attitude towards these new abilities. As I said, I think they've grown quite complacent because they've had these powers for a while now and default to them pretty easily. Like whenever there's a minor inconvenience, they will use their powers if they can. But when they realize how much the powers have grown, Emma is rightfully cautious again, but Ricky has a more flippant attitude. She seems really casual about the fact that they're suddenly so much more powerful and I thought it was a little bit out of character because yeah she is reckless but she has gone through an extreme situation where she realized just her dangerous her abilities could be to her and those around her and it feels like that episode it felt like such a significant one at the time but it feels like it didn't lead to that much development on her part when it comes to her perception of these powers. Yeah that's a great point. It it's almost like a setback. Yeah. In general, I feel like both Emma and Ricky didn't really develop much from everything that happened in season one. They're kind of static, at least when compared to characters like Cleo and Cleo's dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Cleo definitely has a much more significant character growth. I don't know that I agree with you. Like, yeah, you're right. I mean, like, I guess if you compare it to Cleo, but like Ricky now like shares herself with friends and stuff does she though yeah there's a whole episode in season two where like she opens up and stuff that's fine but she still keeps secrets though and i mean i get it just because your friends doesn't mean you have to tell them everything but she keeps important information from them namely the fact that she starts dating zane again <laughs> it's like one step forward two steps back and yeah maybe i was unfair in saying that they're static they're not static but they keep regressing in my eyes <laughs> I guess the way I see it, that's the growth. Like, before that, it's not that she was keeping secrets. It's that there wasn't somebody to keep secrets from. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> that's the way I saw it. It's like she didn't even consider telling them, but now she considers it, but she doesn't. <laughs> so season two starts off weird because immediately we learn that there's been this huge change in Clea's family when her parents have split up and her mom has left. And this information is dropped to us with no preamble. I was so shocked when this happens. It also stood out to me that they treat this like a normal divorce instead of her mom like leaves them instead of just like leaving her father. Like she just never shows up again. Even the way they talk about it in the show, it's as if they don't have a mom anymore. Yeah. But things just keep going wrong because Lewis is also acting really strangely. <laughs> In the beginning of season two, he's being a really crappy boyfriend, honestly. He's being really suffocating and he doesn't really listen to her. She says at one point to the girls about Lewis, he's doing everything right, but I can't stand it anymore. But like, he isn't. If he was, then he would listen to you and he wouldn't treat you like this. Yeah. I guess I don't know that the show 
or the narrative is agreeing with Cleo. Like, I, I guess it, it's fine that Cleo thinks this way because it's like, this is a moment of growth for her and stuff, you know? I read it as like, on paper, Lewis is doing everything right in that he's protecting her, he's on her side, he's supporting her, but the reality is that he's taking it to extremes and that's when there's an issue. So I, I don't think it's either the show or Cleo saying that what he's doing is okay. It's like, in theory, it would be if he weren't taking it too far. Yeah, but Cleo breaks up with Lewis. Yeah, I always thought that there could be a better way of going about things. But I do understand that the one thing Cleo has control over right now is her relationship considering other aspects of her life are falling apart. It's basically her changing the one variable that she can. And as frustrating as it is to see her push away someone who's on her side unconditionally, it is an understandable reaction. Given their age and everything, I understand. It makes sense that she would do that. I agree. I also keep thinking that talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> Just talk about it. Like, that's the solution. But they kind of do. Like, I am really glad that Cleo is being pretty clear about what is troubling her with Lewis's behavior. When they have the conversation in the bedroom, in this breakup conversation, she is being pretty clear. But Lewis doesn't really get what she's saying, and it really bugged me. Moving forward, they struggle with the breakup and still having feelings for one another. But they never quite resolve this as a character beat for Lewis, this conflict. Like, when they get back together, they're better, sure, in the sense that they're how they used to be before season 2, but how did Lewis get there? There's no acknowledgement from Lewis that the way he was acting was wrong, and a growth that we get to see. In fact, we don't even get an exploration of why Lewis started acting this way in the first place. We can assume that it's because Cleo's powers got out of control and he's trying to grapple with that himself, which is a great character beat for Lewis to have this overwhelming fear and need for control, but that's not explored at all, just an assumption from context clues. They do kind of attempt to touch on the sphere of Lewis's in season 2 episode 16, Double Trouble, where he keeps having nightmares about Cleo being discovered as a mermaid. But it's not resolved as an original conflict for Lewis and in their relationship. We also see that in the very few sentences he does say in this breakup talk, that part of his issue is that he wants to be part of the group, to <laughs> share this innate connection that the girls have because of their powers. Yeah, And that's really interesting. It's especially interesting because Cleo firmly laying down the facts that no matter what, he isn't one of them, is such a great learning curve for a character that's true to life. It's about accepting certain truths and not condemning the simple desire for a sense of belonging. But they never really explore this further. I would like to think that the whole point of Charlotte's character and the season's arc is to explore this conflict and show the nuances of it. Except that it's never really brought up ever again in the sense that it is in this breakup scene. Moving forward, it's about how they're friends and yada yada and it's like, of course you guys are friends. The fact that you are friends and care about each other and yet Lewis has no right to, say, act as if he's as burdened with the cons of these powers the way the girls are because they have no choice because it's a fact of their lives that cannot be shocked or set aside at their convenience is still a distinction that matters. So it just feels like this conflict is never resolved and that character growth is never shown because it completely gets derailed by external factors by Charlotte. As if the issue stems from external forces all along when it's a matter of internal conflict and growth. It could even be an interesting thing where like he's dating Charlotte, right? And Charlotte is a mermaid and he starts acting kind of in a similar way, having this ownership of that identity. And Charlotte also shuts that down and he starts like realizing, he starts learning. It's a great thing that people learn throughout their lives and like in a coming of age story and they just like squander it. 
that's a really really great point it does have some really interesting themes that they could have explored that would have made for a very complex character arc for Lewis and I mean in general it's really interesting to explore the consequences that the girl's powers have for him because yes he's not directly involved in the way the girls are and he never can be but by burdening him with the secret the girls also do rob him of certain things like he can never let other people into his life completely because he is basically doomed to always gaslight people if they ever get close to the girl's secret Throughout his relationship with Charlotte, up until the point where she finds out about the existence of mermaids, he gaslights her so much. <laughs> All of it, I think, is left unexplored. And the season, the first half of it at least, is so wasted focusing on Cleo's jealousy of Charlotte getting close to Louis. It lacks the complexity of season one, where I think they managed to intertwine the internal and external conflicts so much better. I get what you're saying with the consequences for Lewis's life, but I don't know if I fully agree, because like, I get it, but also, I don't think it's his secret to tell. It's not, that's the thing. He adopts it as his secret to protect, because he's best friends with Cleo. What would he be holding back from, say, his partner or whatever? I mean, it could be anything that he and Charlotte go through. What if his partner wants to go to Mako Island and the girls freak out again? I just feel like he's lacking a certain freedom because he's in on the secret. I'm not blaming them. He takes it upon himself to involve himself, but they also need his help. Yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting thing to think about. But I mean, I wasn't trying to equate it to the point that you brought up yeah, it's yeah. just in general i think it's interesting to explore it's interesting to explore how the secret affects even the people who don't have the powers and then we move on to charlotte's arrival uh, yeah <laughs> we do get a new character this season namely charlotte last name unknown it is known yeah but unknown to me i don't know <laughs> <laughs> okay. When Charlotte first shows up, Cleo is actually friendly with her, which is always what strikes me. And what I didn't notice is that Charlotte immediately looks to be interested in Louis. And then in the same episode, Charlotte makes contact <laughs> with Louis again at the juice bar. I will say now that her character is confusing to me and also feels a bit like a failure writing-wise. I have so many issues with her character. And I'm not even saying that because she's a villain. I just mean the construction and function of her character. Because while later on, specifically towards the very end of the season, her motives are a bit clearer, even the evil ones. Here, what even is her perspective and motive? What is this conversation even? She acts a little weird when bringing up the girls when she's talking to Louis one-on-one -on -one at the juice bar. And Louis says, oh, we're all good friends. And I'm still confused here where she's coming from, what she's thinking or, you know, and that goes for the rest of the season as well. Like, she doesn't like that he has friends. For a second, I was like, okay, if she's interested in him, she's just acting weird because she knows or suspects that he and Cleo are more than friends. But the way the scene plays out and it's worded, it's clear they're talking about the whole group. Maybe she just wants to talk to Lewis, but doesn't know what to say. She already had, like, ulterior motives from the beginning, and I don't understand where that's coming from. Why did she even pick Lewis? She's not, like, flirting with Lewis and then, like, that's how she gets him interested in her. 
she like has to do 99 other things behind the scenes to make sure that she's the only option yeah. i guess shitty people exist but like <laughs> good point i don't know why it's hard for me to understand i don't remember the exact dialogue in this scene just from what i remember at this point to me it didn't seem like she had any ulterior motive other than her intention to just get closer to Lewis, get to know him, become friends with him so that maybe they can go out. For me, the nefarious actions started once she had forced herself, well, already forcing herself into his life is pretty bad. She keeps pushing her presence onto Lewis and by extension the girls. But I think truly it began the first time she took his phone and either turned it off or declined a call or something. That's when I'm like, okay, now there's no excuse. But to be fair, if any of her behavior does come across as manipulative, it is because she is manipulative. Yeah. <laughs> Later on, when she becomes a mermaid, one of the first things she does is try to cut Lewis off from his friends. And that's like classic manipulative, abusive behavior. She tries to isolate him from everybody around him. And maybe this in the beginning, whatever comes across as nefarious to you, maybe this is like manipulation light, you know, just like a hint at what's coming. Yeah. That's what was the way I read that scene. It's like the building blocks for what goes down later. I thought she just wanted to hang out, but <laughs> you're right. She makes this distinction to present an us versus them kind of thing with the girls. And it's a very subtle thing. And this is why the first time I watched the show, I was really confused by Charlotte because I couldn't understand. At first, I'm like, oh, maybe she just wants to be friends with the girls and she's like being left out. But then as we go on, I'm like, oh, but she doesn't want to. Now I'm trying to figure out what the motivation is because it's not to get close with the girls. So it must be just Lewis. And I'm like, why? <laughs> just, there's a part where Lewis is sulking after the breakup with Cleo on the beach. And then it pans to a pair of hands finishing off a sketch of him, which we know is Charlotte because she's an artist. Also because she gives the sketch to Lewis later. But it's like, is this supposed to insinuate that she's stalking him? I was gonna say, in the first episode that she's in, they run into each other way too many times for it to be a coincidence. Like, okay, I don't know <laughs> how big their neighborhood is or whatever, but they see each other multiple times throughout the episode. And it's always when he's alone as well. It's slightly creepy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she was this full-on fucked up stalker villain person the whole time. Because this is the first episode of her appearance. And I think that's the main thing that keeps tripping me. I, I keep saying this, but that is the main thing that keeps tripping me up. I can't get over the fact that they just have this cartoon villain out of nowhere. Like it's a season of Dateline. It was so out of the realm of the show and genre that I keep grasping for straws as to where she's coming from. What her motivation is that falls in line with the tone of the show. That's like my biggest gripe with the Charlotte storyline. I can see that. But on the subject of Charlotte and Lewis, the way they get together and the state of their relationship the rest of the time, honestly, is so bizarre. Because <laughs> Lewis repeatedly tells her he just wants to be friends. Or at least isn't opposed to it. But what he is opposed to, and he expresses it explicitly multiple times, is being romantically involved with her. It's partly because he has feelings for Cleo, but that doesn't negate the fact that it is also a lack of romantic interest in Charlotte. Even if he was over Cleo, doesn't mean that there's no reason for him to not be with Charlotte. Like, that's not how that works. But Charlotte keeps creating opportunities to trap Lewis into romantic situations by taking advantage of his friendship, and it's so infuriating to watch, especially when it successfully transforms into a romantic relationship. Her scheming, I think, is also particularly frustrating because it's, like, completely unnecessary. Cleo had already been super friendly with her in the very beginnings, 
And she and the girls only seriously dislike her when she starts acting weird with Louis. Louis is already her friend. She can just be normal and like not evil. <laughs> and she would already have a genuine relationship with Louis and possibly the girls. This is why her character confuses me. I don't know what she wants. Like you already had Louis. All this evil bullshit is so unnecessary. And okay, it's also weird because we have this thing with her grandmother and Mako, which is an interesting thread and motive for Charlotte. But that just confused me even more because it's paired with her weird stalker manipulative behavior. Like, why can't the grandmother and Mako just be her storyline? And sure, she she gets together with Louis, but not through evil means. <laughs> That already makes her an antagonist to the girls because she's directly getting in the way of their secrecy because she wants to know about her grandmother. And then she discovers her grandmother's past and gains powers and that power corrupts her and then she becomes evil. Because as it is in the show, she just always was and presumably always will be. At the end of the season, I was not at all reassured. I was like, is no one gonna maybe report her to like her guardian or something? She's a danger to society, to herself. The fact that she just kind of goes off into the sunset on her own <laughs> worried me to no end. And to get back to your point, the way they get together is that they're at Mako and the girls are there too. And in an effort to keep Charlotte from seeing Cleo in the water, Louis grabs Charlotte and she takes that as interest and then kisses him. And then he just goes along with it moving forward. The thing is, right before this, he was still repeatedly expressing his stance of just wanting to be friends and nothing more. It's a complete accident that things end up going the way that it does. And then later he starts developing feelings over time. And it's like after she's already coerced him into being in a relationship with her. I feel like they combine too many things so so it's confusing <laughs> i agree on the fact that charlotte's motivations are really confusing because i also thought that she wanted to fit in yeah. she wanted friends and the girls welcomed her despite their reservations and in the most i guess intimate is the only way i can think of it it's like the closest you can get to them because you're also a mermaid that's even closer than lewis <laughs> yeah. she gets everything it seems she wanted but she throws it all away because she's too busy being evil. So I also am confused by what she's looking for this entire time. Where I didn't agree with you is when you talked about the relationships between the characters. Because you said, if I remember correctly, that there's a reason why the girls start acting negatively towards her and that's when she's acting weird. And to be fair, yes, she's acting weird pretty early on, but I still think that Cleo especially has an unfounded hatred towards Charlotte even before she does anything that offensive. Episode 2 is where Charlotte shows up for the first time. Cleo meets her and she breaks up with Louis in the same episode. Episode 3, she's horrendous towards Charlotte even though Charlotte hasn't done anything except hang out with Louis. Even if she has ulterior motives, there's no way for Cleo to know because Cleo hasn't talked to Charlotte at all apart from the first time she said hello to her. Cleo starts interrogating Charlotte. She takes her diary and she confronts Charlotte about the supposed boyfriend she already has. And it's all before Charlotte has done anything offensive, I would say. So at this point, I'm feeling sorry for Charlotte and I'm kind of infuriated at Cleo because she's acting really immaturely. I think this might be where we diverge about the Cleo thing. This is the way I read the third episode. I liked them exploring Cleo's jealousy, like the fact that it's irrational, the fact that it's immature, the fact that she loses control of herself. 
because of the way things went down between Cleo and Louis, it like it's not it has nothing to do with the fact that they don't love each other anymore or whatever. It's that they had problems in their relationship and she now has to deal with the idea of him possibly being with somebody else and dealing with the way that makes her feel and knowing full well she was the one who broke up with him. That's fair. I think I would have liked it better if one, we hadn't continued to revisit this irrational jealousy throughout the first half of season two because it keeps happening where she acts terribly towards Charlotte. Lewis offers her the chance to talk things through and she declines and then she acts horribly towards Charlotte again. There's not a coherent arc where, yes, she battles all these feelings, but ultimately she reaches some kind of conclusion. And secondly, I think I would like this better if it had been intertwined with her struggles with her powers, because this is a great moment for those powers to go out of control now that she's also lost that stability that she had with Lewis, that emotional support. It would make sense for the anxiety surrounding the whole situation to reflect in her powers as well, but I don't understand again why they separated the two things that's a great idea tying it with her powers it would have been great i would have loved that i will say part of why it was so interesting to see the way they explored cleo's jealousy is the fact that she doesn't want to get back together with lewis it's just it's hard to watch i agree (laughs) by episode 10 i got so tired what happens is Cleo's jealousy combines with the other two freaking out about Charlotte going to Mako Island and, quote, getting close to them. To me, it seemed like they blow it out of proportion and they're like, if she gets close to you, she gets close to us. That doesn't have to be the case. She has no reason to be interested in you. She's only interested in Lewis. I agree with that, especially. That she gets close to you, she gets close to us. Because like, like he said, like the consequences to his life, like what happens when, when she, he can't date anyone ever again? <laughs> I think there are a few places where we diverge because I think maybe like I see the girls noticing Charlotte's manipulations earlier. To me, I feel like that irrational jealousy at its height is present basically in episode three. And that's like where we explore it. And then afterwards, they like start realizing that Charlotte is manipulating things. And that's why. Yeah, because Charlotte was never really interested in Lewis. Maybe the girls are more attuned to her ulterior motives, whatever they may be. (laughs) Even she doesn't know. (laughs) Maybe it's like a power trip. Like, she just enjoys the power trip. Yeah, I think this is it. I think she wants Lewis, but she doesn't just want Lewis. She wants... Complete power over... Complete power over Lewis. She she wants to be Lewis's abusive partner. <laughs> but anyway, so I think I'm less irritated by Cleo's irrational jealousy because her irrational jealousy is clouding things, but it, it's less about that and more about like the manipulation but I also understand what you mean because I think it does kind of taint the actual misdeeds that Charlotte does I feel like that's also such an unfortunate factor because if this hadn't been a factor then maybe Lewis could have taken their concern more seriously I will say I think the girl should have tried more to save Lewis from this relationship I know he and Cleo broke up but he's still their friend and they already saw how truly manipulative Charlotte was at its height with the biology test fiasco so even this early on but especially as things progress I think they should have done more to work against Charlotte's efforts to isolate Lewis and take advantage of him it infuriated me because i'm like you guys are being bad friends there's a part where they're talking about charlotte and lewis and cleo points out that lewis is their friend and ricky says not if he's with her he's made his bed let him lie in it 
And like, okay, maybe they don't know the extent of Charlotte's actions, even though like the extent that they do know is already very bad, but they do know enough. And the fact that there isn't a resolution to this later when they're all friends again, where they express some regret just really bugged me. Even at the end of this episode, which is episode 25, after everything with Charlotte and Louis hurts Cleo, the girls say to her, we're sorry, we should have been there for you and never say anything of the sort to Louis. I, I it really frustrated me. I think it's an extension of Ricky and Emma never really treating Lewis with the kind of consideration that he deserves. I brought up before that they're always dismissive of him, and I think this is kind of another example of that. I don't know for sure that we can totally for sure know how much of Charlotte's manipulation they're aware of. For me, the way I read it at least, it's a lot of irrational jealousy on Cleo's part that's just blindly supported by Emma and Ricky. But I do agree with the fact that the biology fiasco is definitely a turning point. After that, there should have been some kind of communication between Lewis and the girls. I think instead of it being an example of how Ricky and Emma don't trust Lewis, I think it's a consequence of this attitude the way they think of him and the way they treat him i can see that as long as we're agreeing that they're treating him badly <laughs> i'm on board yeah <laughs> that's actually all we'll be discussing this episode and we will be discussing the rest of the show on the next episode so stick around for that yeah we'll be back to h2o again next week but in the meantime if you have any suggestions for movies or tv shows <laughs> we should discuss on the podcast send them in at graveyard underscore slot on twitter and instagram or email us at the graveyard slot at gmail.com if you enjoyed this episode please rate and review thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next episode of the graveyard slot <laughs>